0: Yeah, thanks, David. For but he was wrong, is what we're saying, though. Just to be clear, <laughs> well, he's
1: definitely wrong. Yes. Go fuck yourself, David.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who the fuck do you think you are? <laughs> All right, good. Glad we uh, glad we got to that. Um, glad
1: we just you know and another listener.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's uh, <laughs> that's how you grow the base, buddy. Welcome to to Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Anslicht. Miki, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing pretty well. I'm uh, excited uh, for our special guest today.
0: Special guest? What are you talking about, man?
1: Well, we have none other than Ann Wilson, uh, a professor of psychology from Wilford Laurier University, here with us today. So hi,
2: Ann. Hi, Miki. How are you all?
1: Hi. So you know, before we really get into this... Um, I read an article this weekend that uh, you, well, I, I want to test, I want to test a little bit your, you know, your Canadiana, like how Canadian are you?
0: Zero. I'm zero Canadian.
1: Okay. So this will be like a litmus test. So there was an article that outraged me and we know from our last episode, that outrage is good, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, invariably. I think that's what we settled on. That's right. So I was outraged because apparently the city of Montreal, my hometown is going to be banning wood-burning stoves uh, in the entire city, which, of course, makes sense because uh, they are major pollutants. But here's the issue. Uh, Montrealers such as myself take immense pride of our bagels. And the secret sauce of our bagels is the wood-burning oven. So they're going to be effectively changing, killing the Montreal bagels. What do you think, Ewell? I
0: think that's terrible. I'm outraged on your behalf.
1: Now, have you ever had a Montreal
0: bagel? Uh, the kind of loblaws that that say Montreal bagel, does that count as a Montreal bagel? <laughs> it does
1: not count as a Montreal bagel. <laughs> what about the place in Kensington? New bagel? Yeah. New bagel's Montreal style. Uh, that, that that that's passable. Okay, well then yes, then I've had one and I like them. All right. And do you have any opinions about Montreal bagels? I
2: love them. I'm outraged too. All <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: it's kind of hilarious because it's actually a friend of mine who wrote the article. Uh, Joseph Rosen wrote this article in the Globe and Mail. And part of the reason he wrote the article was he just kind of made some comment offhand on Facebook. And it was the most discussed thing on my timeline by far. All the Montrealers were outraged. And some were like kind of like progressive environmentalists being, no, 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 we have to change this. Fuck the bagels. You know, it's not important. And other progressives who were like... You know, yes, we want clean Montreal, but this is a line too far. Um, so I thought it's hilarious. This is uniting Montrealers.
0: Are there really enough like bagel making wood burning ovens that this is a significant contribution to to the air quality?
1: Well, apparently, I mean, according to Joseph, no. So the major pollutants are well homes uh, that have wood burning uh, wood burning ovens, uh, major industry, but there are apparently something like in the order of seventy small businesses. Uh, usually family businesses in Montreal uh, that use wood burning. So these are bagel factories. These are uh, Italian pizzerias. These are uh, Portuguese chicken places. So they will be affected, but, you know, they're, I think, small potatoes compared to the uh, the big polluters.
0: Right. So I feel like you should be able to get an exemption for like cultural heritage reasons.
1: Yeah, so apparently this might be happening. So the mayor of Montreal contacted my friend Joseph after she read his article, probably just to calm him down. Because <laughs> the, the, the title of the, of the article was The Death of the Montreal Bagel. That would be like saying the death of poutine. Um, maybe even more so, because the Montreal Bagel is a rich love of that in uh, Lisa Montreal.
0: Yeah, Mickey, I think this aggression will not stand.
1: <laughs> Across this line, you shall not!
0: Exactly. Um, so are we going to stop dicking around and uh, what, what are we doing?
1: I think we should uh, talk beer. And, and Anne, uh, this is what our fourth or fifth you know, donation of beer. Anne has been uh, very generous and donated beer to us. So Anne, can you tell us a little bit about be, what we'll be drinking today?
2: Yeah, well, I am from New Brunswick, and I actually listened to a number of your podcasts on the long drive to New Brunswick this summer and brought back some beer, uh, sort of as a celebration and to thank you. Um, and it was nice of you to actually invite me to come on to share it. That wasn't required, but thanks. So the f- one that we're drinking first is from a nano brewery called Think Brewing. Um, and it's from Harvey, New Brunswick. And if you look online, the brewery basically just looks like a little barn. Like it's it's almost looks like it's half falling down. So I'm assuming it looks a little bit better on the inside. And the beer is called the Eureka ESB Extra Special Bitter.
1: Excellent. And a, a nano brewery. That's I don't think I've ever heard that term before.
2: Yeah. that's We do it tiny in New Brunswick. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm going to remember that next time I meet a man from New, uh, New Brunswick. Um, so, well, thank you. Thank you for, for for generously bringing us beer, and we've got, I think, a, a selection, a variety of beers for um, uh, for, the, for after the break. So let me just do a kind of a little quick intro of Anne for our listeners. So as I mentioned, uh, Anne Wilson is a professor of psychology at Wilfrid Laurier University, um, which has become a bit infamous uh, in certain circles, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, and now you are a fellow of the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research in their Sustainable Societies group.
2: Successful Societies, yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, successful Societies, sorry. And you were like really at the front lines of um, this strange series of events uh, that occurred over the past year and a half. So I suspect some of our listeners know the story, but not all of them. So do you want to kind of Tell us the story of what happened at Wilfrid Laurier.
2: Yeah, sure. So the, the initial event um, hit the news uh, because of a, a recording that was released. Um, but the backstory before that happened is that a TA, Lindsay Shepard, who's a relatively well-known name at this point, um, she decided to play a little bit of a... a a clip of a debate that had happened on public television between Jordan Peterson and some other scholars that was really talking about the whole gender pronoun issue, right? And this is something that... um, has, I think a lot of people have heard of over the last while, um, they were debating, he was saying that, uh, some of the new laws were, um, a restriction on his freedom of speech and he was opposed to some of what was happening. Um, and she decided to show this as part of a class. It was a tutorial that she was teaching that had to do with grammar, essentially. So, um, the class was at least kind of loosely related to things like pronoun use. And she thought that it would be interesting to bring in this kind of controversy. So you could argue either way about whether that was a good idea for her to do without consulting with the professor and so on. Um, but what ended up happening after that is that uh, the the professor got wind of this. Um, it's actually a little unclear exactly how. Initially, it sounded like there was a formal complaint, and then it turned out later that there wasn't. But it, at some point, it, it got back to him that there might have been some concerns about this. And uh, rather than bringing her in maybe for an individual chat, he had uh, a couple of other people in the room with him. So there was another professor and there was somebody from the equity office. And it really did turn into – it was like an hour-long uh, – it was it was a pretty uncomfortable conversation, um, and it included quite a lot of, I think, kind of harsh uh, accusations towards her, that what she was uh, doing was, um, you know, gendered, that was breaking the gender violence policy, uh, that it was hate speech, um, and a number of other things. Um, she was crying at various points on the, the recording. Um, and... At some point during this this uh, this interaction anyway, she decided to start recording it. So this is how it became public knowledge, is that it was released to the media.
1: Oh, so I didn't know that. So it wasn't recorded from the get-go. So she didn't go in there being, I'm going to record this and get them. Is She was maybe upset what was happening and decided to kind of midstream to, to record.
2: I think it was fairly early on. Um, and I believe at least what I've heard is that she had been advised to potentially have the – have the opportunity to record, right? So to have her computer with her. Um, And I think it was fairly early on, she was concerned about the fact that there were three people against one and that sort of thing. So she did decide to record at some point. Now there's a lot of different views on how that actually went down. Some people think that she kind of did it on purpose to really catch them out. Um, But, you know, I, I listened to the tape and no matter what you think of Jordan Peterson and what you think of, uh, the issue, I thought that her treatment was, was just not great, right? That, that it shouldn't have happened the way that it did happen. Um, and, uh, you know, so I was really quite concerned about it and it turned into this huge campus controversy, right? And so this is where, you know, I was looking at it through one lens as just a member of this campus community and another lens was my interest in political psychology and in this polarization that I saw happening around me and that sort of thing. And so I was seeing this go down kind of right in front of me. And, uh, the way that it ended up getting construed was, um, that there were really two sides that you could take, right? So you were either somebody who supported trans people on campus or you were somebody who supported free speech, right? And you know, I thought to myself, but I, I support both. I, I don't I don't see this as uh, an either or kind of situation. And it was very difficult to figure out how to wade into the debate, because if you kind of stood up for one side, it was conveying that you were against the other side. And so this is actually one of the things I do want to say, and I'm quite happy to say publicly that um, I, I'm pretty ashamed of myself, because at the time, at that first Um, moment when this whole thing was going down. I stayed quiet, as did most of my colleagues. And I can't tell you how many behind closed doors conversations we had about it. Um, But very few people actually stood up publicly and defended her at that point. Um, In some cases, it was because nobody knew exactly what the real deal was, right? So we didn't have enough information. But in a lot of ways, we really just didn't want to get involved because these two sides were at each other's throats.
0: I I just, I want to hear a little more about what it felt like to be there as this was going down. So you talked about, you you feel like you don't even want to stick your head up because there's these very angry people on all sides yelling at each other and you don't want to get in the middle of that. So say a little more about what that was like.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think that uh, a lot of us are you know, we're busy academics, right? We got a lot going on. And so to really responsibly get involved in this kind of stuff, it often means dropping what you're doing, you know, doing some research, understanding the actual issues. So, you know, I was doing the, all of that kind of stuff on the side. I started to listen to what Jordan Peterson was actually saying about these topics. I started to try to understand what the other side was saying and that kind of thing. Um, but it's it's actually tough to really, you know, jump in when you don't have all of that information. And there really is, you know, there was a bit of a tendency to just kind of label people, right? So um, I initially, there were petitions going around. So I initially um, signed a petition saying that I support free speech. And then I started to read the comments, right? The comments on the petition. And the comments were coming from, you know, these people who were expressing really pretty, you know, racist and anti-trans perspectives and this kind of stuff. Not all of them, obviously. Um, but some of that um, underlying animosity was really kind of emerging. And one of the things I had to do was spend a lot of time trying to understand, you know, what's my position on free speech? I, I really strongly support it from a principled perspective. And I also know that sometimes it gets used as cover for racism or for transphobia or whatever else. Um, but that doesn't, Mean I can stop supporting free speech. Right. Um, so it was that kind of thing. And then on the other side, there was a petition going around saying, well, you know, you support trans people and, um, and this kind of speech is violence against them. Um, and, you know, I was feeling so torn because I'm like, but I do support you. I, you know, I, I think that it's really important that you're not harassed and that you're not subjected to mistreatment of any kind. Um, but that, I can't do that by saying I don't support free speech, right? Those two things, how do you figure out a a way um, to to do both?
1: Um, Kind of odd. I mean, as you're saying it now, I'm like, this is, these are orthogonal concepts. I mean, you you know, they're not linked. They're not opposites. Uh, And it's strange that in, at Laurier, um, you know, it would be linked this way. And maybe even to some extent more broadly uh, in our political discourse, you know, if you're for free speech nowadays it seems like that means that's like a, almost like a dog whistle that you're on the right and that you want you, just, you support racist views or something like that which is i think so bizarre and
2: strange yeah i that's one of the things that i've been saying over and over again as much as i can that as somebody on the left i want to take free speech back that doesn't mean you know, it doesn't belong to, it does belong to everybody but there has been i think a real Move towards mistrusting what the word free speech means and what it means when somebody says they support it, right? Um, and I think that's really unfortunate because you know fundamentally free speech has been so important for supporting all of the social progress that we've had over the last uh, you know many uh, decades, and um, it's it's essential. You know, free speech is also about protest. Free speech is about you know pushing uncomfortable ideas that are about um, inequality and about injustice and those kinds of things. So I think that we've got to figure out a way to get past this idea that if somebody talks about being supportive of free speech, that means that they want to have the right to just say, you know, bigoted things.
1: Well, it turns out that, I mean, this this kind of notion that we have about this link between free speech and, let's say, bigoted views, there's some research suggesting that you know, it, it shouldn't be this way, but it seems like it is being used to some extent as a cover for prejudiced views. So I have a paper in front of me right now um, by White and Crandall, uh, published last year in uh, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Um, it's titled Freedom of Racist Speech, Ego and Expressive Threat. And, you know, there's a lot in there. Um But let me just read this one line here. In a series of eight studies with uh, uh, over 1,600 participants, we found that explicit racial prejudice is a reliable predictor of the, quote-unquote, free speech defense of racist expression. Participants endorse free speech values for singing racist songs or posting racist comments on social media. People high in prejudice endorse free speech more than people low in prejudice. And the meta-analytic correlation is an R of 0.43, so not small um so
0: mickey i haven't read this paper um did they look at issues that where the left would endorse you know the unpopular position so let's say for example um criticizing israel right so that's something where many campus administrators have wanted to shut that down um so say that You know, you give people scenarios about people who want to criticize Israel in harsh terms. And then, you know, you ask them, well, do you support free speech for these folks? Or maybe even do you support free speech in general?
1: Wouldn't you see that flip, don't you think? Uh, possibly. I mean, so, you know, I also, I do have not read this paper. I read the abstract. <laughs>
0: nice. Thanks. Thanks for admitting it.
1: Yes. Um, but I mean, so I think one, I, I remember when Chris Crandall was talking about this, I think in the media a couple of years ago, um, he made the point, he made a, I think an important point and that is that, um, yes, you know, prejudiced people might endorse free speech views as a cover, but the other link doesn't necessarily work. Right. So you being pro pro free speech does not mean you're high in prejudice.
0: I mean, in general, I feel like people, um, their commitment to principles in the abstract is uh, fairly weak, and they endorse the principles that happen to be good for their side at the moment. Um, so if you, like for political reasons, like the particular speech that's that's being restricted, then you're like, oh, free speech, great. And if you don't, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, censorship, censorship sometimes Sometimes a solid idea, right? So, like, I, I think just by picking the scenarios, you
1: can flip the relationship, would be my guess. Yeah, no, I, I, don't, I don't doubt that's true. Um, but I mean, I think nonetheless, I think it's interesting that we're, I mean, it seems like it's, you know, quote unquote centrists, uh, or, or right wingers who seem to be kind of, uh, waving the free speech flag much more so than those on the left, which to me, it's not a, it's not a political issue. It's, it's just a value that we have as a society. Uh, and, uh, whether you, it's a value we hold, we should hold whether we're on the right or the left, but it seems right now to be owned by the right.
0: Right. So, so let me give you a cynical take, which is this. If you find yourself in a position of power, um, which the left in, in the US certainly is not in general in the political system, but is in some spheres, so academia, um, entertainment, arguably the media, if you are in a position of power, then it becomes more attractive to shut up your opponents, right? So It makes sense that in these specific contexts, like campus, people on the left would now be more skeptical of free speech um, because it is advantageous to their interests to be able uh, to muzzle the people that they disagree with.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's an argument about it's about power as opposed to about left or right.
0: Yeah, it's, there's nothing like inherent about this. So, like, imagine an alternate reality in which you know the right dominated campuses. Um, they would be not particularly fans of free speech because they would want to shut up uh, the minority on the left who they disagree with.
2: And there's plenty of evidence that that is the case, right? So at places where, uh, you know, Christian colleges, it happens in the reverse, even though those are conservatives, if they have the upper hand, Um, you know, and there's also evidence that although there is this tendency towards these kind of campus free speech crises crises being left-wing driven, there are more cases right now of, 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 faculty members being fired because of left-wing views instead of right-wing views, right? So it's certainly not something that I think is a partisan issue. And I think it's been a real mistake for the left to allow it to become a partisan issue, right? I think that you can kind of distinguish two things. So it's always going to be the case that people will appeal to a principle when it fits their cause, right? So that's just sort of basic motivated reasoning. It's more important to me when it helps me to achieve whatever end I'm trying to achieve. But I do think that free speech is also a principle that you can try to protect, or at least do your best to try to protect without bringing that kind of uh, partisanship in. Um, so, you know, for example, um, The, you know, free speech defenders who uh, defend both left-wing causes and um, the, you know, like the the right for neo-Nazis to march, right? So uh, the ACLU. Um, That's something that's actually pretty hard for a lot of people to get behind because it's much harder to really kind of feel that principle when it's going against your views. Uh, but I think that that's kind of what I would like to see us try to get behind. I think that institutions like universities are really the place to try to rediscover that if there's anywhere out there that can. Um, and I don't think that it's a matter of just kind of allowing it to become uh, used as this partisan issue to, um, at, at this point, is being used by the right to discredit the left. I think it's really strategically a bad idea for us to let that happen. Why? Why? Well, for one reason, I think that people like Richard Spencer, so this is the you know famous neo-Nazi in the States, and our Canadian, uh, not quite version of that, but uh, somebody like Faith Goldie, for example, right? So they have been able to get a lot of attention by being heroes of free speech, or in some cases, martyrs of free speech, right? So a strategy is for them to come onto campus, and um, it's actually kind of good for them to get shut down, right? Because they, they look better, they get more sympathy if they're mistreated by people, I think, than if they actually have to stand there and say what they have to say. So this was part two of the Lindsay Shepard issue at uh, at Laurier, actually, um, one of the things that happened next was we formed a task force to uh, to talk about free expression and to develop a statement of free expression and to kind of move forward as an institution. Uh, some people thought that, you know, this was maybe just kind of a cynical administrative activity. I put my name forward to be part of this task force because I actually thought this was an opportunity to maybe do something to move the needle on social so, social and and cultural change on this topic right so i think it's something that would be good for us all to start re-embracing to some extent
1: and now she is suing uh wilfrid laurier um what are the thoughts i mean actually <laughs> Wilfred laurier seems to have a number of court cases against it based on this incident i guess so one by lindsey shepard and two by jordan peterson i think
2: yeah he's double suing us now yeah
1: yeah so what is the feeling on campus um Maybe let's talk about Lindsay. Um, Jordan gets too much airtime anyways. Uh, so is there sympathy to to her court case? Is that going to just be settled and kind of hushed up? Or what's going to happen there?
2: Yeah, I don't know if I can touch that all that directly. I think that there are two pieces to it, right? And I'm, I'm no legal expert on this stuff. She might have a, a case and possibly one. I don't know whether it's going to be settled or how it's going to work. But um, she may have a case for some mistreatment having to do with the original incident The other thing that she's arguing is that the incident made her unemployable in academia. I'm not so sure that that's a solid case. I think that the original incident, there was some real injustice that went down, Um, but everything that she chose to do after that has kind of made her the name that she is. And, you know, some of that is on her. So I'm not sure that you can really say that that had to do with the original incident in the same way.
1: I mean, one could argue that she is more employable now. Maybe not in her chosen field. I mean, not uh, at least what she was studying at at Wilfrid Laurier. But yeah, she's a practically a household name, um, and I'm sure she would be employable. Oh. Um, but but so I mean but I agree though some injustice was done but whether you know whether that affects her future employment prospects I'm not so sure.
2: Yeah, well and I think I mean she was given an award by the Heterodox Academy. She has been re- recognized both by scholarly and non-scholarly kinds of organizations. So even if there are some subset of people who think poorly of her, I think that she also has quite a a positive following. Um So I'm not sure that she's going to end up coming out uh, badly in all of this. Uh, But, you know, I also, I don't want to diss her in any real way because, you know, she's, she's a young adult. She's kind of finding her own way and whatever she ends up believing, it might not be the same stuff I believe. Um, But, uh, you know, this is, I think I saw a tweet about her that said, young people gonna young, (laughs) right? But it's basically, you know, this is going to be, this is a stage in her life and we'll see what happens next.
1: Well, fascinating, I think, chapter in like our, our cultural history here. Uh, this, you know, uh, what happened to her. But um, we've talked a lot about her, spent a lot of airtime. And I, I am out of beer. You guys, you two are not. But I know Anne could chug. I think. She was underwhelmed, if that's a word. so no, it's not, because I looked it up. It's one of the skills that I learned in my
0: we're back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So probably the easiest way is on Twitter, where we are at 4 beers Pod, at mention us or DM us. Our DMs are open, so you can DM us whether we follow you or not. If you're more of an email person, our email address is 4 at gmail.com, and that will go to both uh, me and to Mickey. And finally, our website, as always, is 4 where you can listen to our Back catalog of episodes as well. If you have some time to kill, um, what uh, what are we drinking? We've switched beers after the break. Uh, do we want to just go around and
1: say what we got, or yeah? And you want to start us off? Yeah.
2: So I have something from Maybe Brewery, and it's an Old Growth Extra Special Bitter, also a New Brunswick beer.
0: Okay, and I have a beer that's from uh, New Brunswick as well, from Big Axe Brewery of Nackawick, New Brunswick. Um, and this is called the uh, Wrath of Putin double I- IPA. Um, it's kind of intense. It's 7%. 7%. Yeah, it's strong. Wrath of Putin is real. It's got a little Soviet worker fist on here. I recommend.
1: Very good. Excellent. And I'm drinking, I picked this one because I just love the name of it. It's wicked good. Uh, it's a pale, a pale, um, uh, it's an East Coast Haze and it's from a Garrison Brewing Company out of Halifax, Nova Scotia. So we're getting a lot of East Coast, Canadian East Coast beer, which is um, much appreciated. I think it's our first uh, episode with beer that is east of Quebec. We had a main beer, so hold on. That be They they're like waste. Yeah, not but not as far you know. Uh, Nova Scotia and Brunswick are, are east of that. That's true. It goes like slanty. Yes, that's right. Good at
0: geography. You know, I've I've never been further east in Canada than Montreal.
1: It's kind of embarrassing. That's the middle of the country.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys all call yeah. it the east. <laughs>
1: The reason why we have the pleasure of having you on our show, Anne, is because you gave a talk today, uh, a well-received talk at uh, the University of Toronto in our psych department, um, and you talked about political polarization. And there's a lot of, I think we hear a lot about how our society is increasingly polarized, uh, more so than ever. Um, but I thought you made a point that at least I hadn't heard before, and maybe our listeners hadn't either, where you trying to argue that the polarization might be more um, apparent than real. So there is real polarization, but it's, it's, it's not as bad as he might think. So I wonder if you could unpack that idea for us a little bit.
2: Yeah. So polarization is the idea that you know the parties and their ideologies are growing further and further apart. And that is happening. There's a pretty well-documented uh, pattern where that's actually going on, both in terms of what politicians do and what the general public is doing. But false polarization, this idea that polarization is also at least partly illusory, is the thing I'm really interested in. As people are really seeing a lot of polarization, maybe more than actually exists. So one of the things that tends not to be newsworthy is all of the places that we have common ground and the places that we actually agree on things across parties. There are more of those than you might expect. Um, but what ends up being really newsworthy and it's, you know, the click, clickbait, and, you know, the stuff that really, you know, gets cycled on a lot of, especially partisan media are the fairly extreme, pretty vivid and pretty egregious instances of bad behavior on both sides, right? So this might be the racist behavior from Republicans, um, and maybe the kind of snowflake or social justice-y kinds of behaviors from uh, from liberals. And these kinds of things end up, they might actually be relatively rare, but because they get so much attention, they're so vivid and they get replayed and replayed, people end up thinking of them as being much more common than they really are. So those types of things, and it's not just those two issues, but those types of things seem to uh, be contributing to this false polarization that we're seeing. There's probably some other things that also contribute. Um, But it ends up meaning that when we see these relatively rare bad behaviors, we start to kind of attribute those things to the entire group to a greater degree than we should. And that may actually end up leading us then to double down on the extremes of our own side to be less likely to dissent when we maybe should be dissenting and saying, hold on, you know, let's not go so far, um, in a particular direction and, uh, and it can actually end up eventually leading to real polarization.
1: So, I mean, I mean, I, again, I, I, you presented some interesting data. So maybe I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about the data that leads you to believe that the polarization might not be as severe as we've been led to believe.
2: Yeah, so I'll give you a couple of examples, right? So uh, one of the characterizations that we hear a lot um, from people on the left is that Republicans are racist. And you can certainly point to instances where... You know you see racist behavior so it's certainly not something that is completely made up but i'm i'm actually of the view that you know that's it's not necessarily fair or accurate to be trying to paint anybody with the same brush and we, we're a social psychologist right we know that you're not supposed to do that you're not supposed to stereotype an entire group on the basis of some individuals within that group and i think that that's actually you know that's part of the process that i'm talking about here Um, but so we find, for example, that a relatively small proportion of Republicans endorse these kinds of racist actions. Um, and if you ask liberals, how many Republicans endorse these actions, they're estimating at least one in two, right? So it might be like 10, 15% actually do, but they think it's closer to 50%. Now the same thing happens, uh, if you ask the other side. So if, um, something like really censorious, intolerant, um, liberal uh perspectives on free speech uh it's actually like you know not very many liberals who who support that it's around 15 percent in a a number of samples that we've taken in the u.s and uh yet if you ask especially conservatives uh they say that it's you know over 50 percent, about 60 percent that this kind of stuff so there's this misperception and when you think that that many people on the other side actually hold these views it has a couple of downstream consequences that are really important i think so one of them is that you start to really dislike the other side because you really disapprove of these egregious things that they're doing and you know fair enough these things are egregious if you actually think that every second person you're going to meet from that side is likely to hold those views then you're going to dislike the whole group and maybe want to engage with them. So we have some data that shows that dislike leads to disengagement. You're not willing to even have a conversation about these topics with people on the other side. The problem there is that that means you end up not having a chance to disconfirm the misconceptions that you have, right?
0: So one thing that occurred to me during your talk is might part of this come from the distinction between endorsing versus tolerating? So Trump ended up getting uh the vote of around 90% of Republicans it was he he got uh the support of a similar number of uh percentage of Republicans as Romney did uh in the previous presidential election right so despite their discomfort with Trump Republicans by and large ended up coming home and and voting for him in the presidential election for for a variety of reasons and i think as uh, not a republican observing this you might say look if you're willing to vote for this guy despite the fact that he's repeatedly made i think unambiguously racist statements about mexican immigrants for example that means that you are also a racist and i think his republican supporters might say Well, you know, I disagree with that stuff, but I'm willing to vote for him because the alternative was worse or because I want Supreme Court justices that will, uh, you know, uphold the values that I want or or I want lower taxes or whatever, right? So to them, it's like they're, they're choosing to overlook something that they don't really like because they have other goals. Whereas from the other side, it looks like, well, how could you possibly support this person unless you're on board with this agenda? Does that seem at all plausible to you?
2: Yeah, I think that, so I can't speak to it with data, but I think that that is one of the real pushbacks when you say, well, you know, maybe we should seek common ground, not every Trump supporter is racist and that sort of thing. And uh, so you can always say, well, but they support it. If you choose to support somebody who has these kinds of views, then can you really uh, duck it? I think that um, tribalism is powerful enough that there's a lot of ways people can convince themselves that this is a fairly irrelevant piece of the puzzle if they care about the rest of the the stuff that he's talking about Um, I think that you know one of the things that I find really interesting about Trump is that everybody kind of recognizes that he lies and people put different frames on that right so some people are like well but he doesn't really mean the racist stuff right so it, or they, they don't even really believe that he said some of the things that um, that are being attributed to him because there's such a powerful fake news kind of vibe going on. Um, so it's not clear to me that what seems unambiguously racist to all of the people who are maybe opposing him is so unambiguously racist to the people who are supporting him, unless it's the thing that they're actually going there because that's what they like.
1: So... um. You know, one I think it's a theme for us, you well, something we've talked about, uh, I think, over the course of a few of our episodes, is this notion that some of us um, are afraid to speak up, are afraid to speak our mind. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how this notion of, you know, false polarization might actually lead to, you know, the differences in the way we conceive of our own side, even. And as a result, we might choose not to speak up because our opinions of our own side might be different than reality.
2: Yeah, I I think there is a number of interpersonal processes that end up perpetuating this false polarization and exacerbating it. And one of the ones that I've started to investigate is this idea of being scared to speak up about the things that you actually don't agree with that you perceive your side as standing for. And I think that... this ties back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier having to do with things like free speech and that but if you have a concern about stuff that your side seems to be standing for and you actually think that you know standing up and saying no I dissent is likely to get you either you know really hassled or potentially even kicked out of your group it's often not worth it to people to really take that step, even though that kind of dissent might be really good for one's group in the long term. Right. So.
1: And I think part of that, I think one of the points you were making in your talk was that perhaps some of that comes from this false view that some of these extreme views are actually widely held by your own group. Yeah. So you might be afraid to speak up. Uh, because you think most people in your group agree with this thing. And if I speak up, I'm like, oh, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to fit in and people aren't going to like me anymore. And they're going to think I'm something else.
2: Yeah. So a lot of, so I'll give the example of free speech since we were talking about that earlier. So although Republicans or conservatives generally think that liberals are more censorious than they really are, most liberals disagree with this, but they also think that far more liberals agree with it than really do. So this seems to be one of the processes that actually keep people from speaking up. So all of the people, and this is like a majority of people within the group, actually oppose that view, but they don't want to be the one to be actively dissenting. So what ends up happening is that the extreme voices on both sides talk a lot, and all of the voices somewhere in the middle who have at least some misgivings about some of the extremes tend to stay silent during a lot of those conversations, which allows these ideas that are much more extreme on both sides to really perpetuate.
1: Okay. So uh, in the second part of your talk today, Anne, you talked about a phenomenon that I found fascinating. Um, and that's this notion that sometimes we use the same words um, and, Dependent on the political tribe we belong to, those words have different meanings. Um, so, for use the use the example of feminism. So, feminism means something to liberals, uh, and it means something else to to those on the right.
2: Yeah, so, feminism, and I, I don't want to say that this does justice to all of the waves of feminism, and you know, there's a there's much broader theory than what I'm going to talk about here. But feminism, in its simplest form really kind of centers around uh, gender equality, right? So um, for opportunities and rights um, and no additional barriers for one group than another. And um, so what I have been finding just, you know, observing social discourse more generally is that when people talk about feminists, they're talking about, these entirely different species. Right? It's, it's not. They're not talking about the same thing. And so we decided to try to look at this by asking a number of questions that seem to get at these sort of moderate views of feminism. So things like, um, you know, gender equality and, you know, gender norms are limiting to both men and women. Uh, both men and women should have the choice to either you know, be at home to raise a family or to be at work and all of these kinds of things. And then more extreme versions of feminism, like, you know, feminism is about women deserving to have more power than men. Um, all men are terrible or rapists or, you know, deserve to be hated for one reason or another and those kinds of things. And so we, you know, asked a lot of people, uh, these questions, and we ask them whether or not they self-identified as conservative liberals and also as feminist or not. And what we found for both of those categories is that almost everybody, whether you're feminist or not, whether you're liberal or conservative, most people agree on all of that gender equality stuff, right? So all of the basic traditional definitions of feminism, everybody was agreeing on. Almost everybody who both identified as feminist and not, uh, disagreed with most of the extreme versions, right? But what differed more than anything else was people's definition of what feminism was. So people who were feminists defined feminism in that moderate way. People who were non-feminist or who are conservatives defined feminism in this sort of power grabbing, man-hating way right? So the definitions were the only thing that really differed between the two groups, and it ended up masking a lot of common ground about what the actual goals were of at least many components of it.
0: So this reminded me a little bit of this critique that I've seen. Um, I think I saw this uh, on Scott Alexander's blog, uh, Slight Star Codex, where he he used this metaphor of of the Mott and the Bailey. So the idea is that you have like a very kind of expansive definition that basically you don't want to defend. And then when you're challenged, you retreat kind of strategically to the definition that nobody could argue with, right? So like, let's say as a feminist, you might um, want to implement all of these kind of like extreme measures to uh, equalize outcomes between men and women. And then when you're challenged, you say like, well, listen, but really feminism Is just the belief that men and women should have equal opportunities or something like this. So, like the idea being that it's it's sort of a strategic expansion and contraction of um, the definition according to the situation that you're in. Do you see any evidence for that in in your data?
2: That's a really that's an interesting perspective on it. That suggests to me that the strategic expansion and retraction happens more among feminists, right? That feminists actually secretly believe the extreme things, but they can kind of retreat to the mild ones. That's possible that that happens with some uh, people. Uh, One of the other little bits that we found is that people who are high in this kind of hierarchy orientation, people who really, you know, think that some groups should have it over other groups in society, they're more likely to believe those extreme versions of feminism. So, you know, there is individual differences in that. Maybe there are some people in that group that would do that. My sense, though, is that the strategic... Uh, shifting is actually happening more on the other side and you know if I was gonna one piece of advice to people is if you really want to understand what a group is about don't ask their opponents what they're about as the place where you find out what the group is really you know what what their definition is Um, so my sense is that in a lot of cases the more extreme versions are being perpetuated by the other side rather than by the actual group
1: Yeah. I I wonder you all, like, I think uh, we've, you and I have been eager to talk about Me Too for a while, and um, maybe we should uh, change gears a bit.
0: Yeah, let's do that. So, um, actually, the last time we recorded, um, we had a a brief discussion of the Dartmouth stuff, and and we ended up cutting it because we felt like we didn't say anything really worthwhile about it. Um, But I I think for many of us in, you know, academia, this has been sort of a a wake-up call of know this isn't just stuff that's happening out there this is stuff that is we should say allegedly um allegedly uh happening here as well where uh you know there there may be situations um environments in which there are like literally you know years of people abusing their powerful positions in order um to sexually uh take advantage of subordinates um and and that evidently, allegedly at Dartmouth, uh, you know, for years, nobody did anything, right? It was sort of an open secret um, that there was this kind of environment of exploitation um, of graduate students by faculty and that nothing was done. Everybody sort of looked the other way. Um, And I think to a lot of us, this has been shocking, you know, reading the details of of the lawsuit that these graduate students and former graduate students have filed against the university. um, And I, I believe against the Professors in question as well. Um, just the the content of it is is really just just shocking, and I I think led a lot of us to ask like how could this happen and and what can we do? Um, and obviously this links to the Me Too movement and the broader culture where people are asking kind of a similar question. Um, so Anne, I I gather that you have, you know, you you know stuff about this. So so what do you think?
2: Um, I have. Really complex views on Me Too, and some of them, I think, just really, you know, correspond to what you just said, that there are many cases that have come out in the last while that make it clear how pervasive this kind of stuff can be, at times at least. One of the things I find really interesting about even the Dartmouth case is that many people who were involved at one point or another, including graduate students in Um, in the program at various points, if they didn't get the worst of the treatment, many of them knew something was off and things were a little wrong, but all of those local experiences don't add up to the aggregate that we're seeing now, right? So that's part of, I think, what makes this kind of stuff so hard to navigate when you're in a single instance, right? So if it's a single instance and you kind of feel like it's inappropriate, what do you do? Do you call it out at that point? Uh, And many times it's only really in retrospect when you start to see all of these things add up that it becomes really obvious. So I think it's actually really easy to deal with the super obvious cases, at least from my vantage point it seems to me like the Dartmouth case is pretty super obvious and I think that one of the things I've been spending more time thinking about, I'm glad that these super obvious cases are starting to see the light of day, I've been spending more time thinking about the somewhat less obvious cases and how the Me Too movement is possibly going to start turning into this, this partisan issue that I think would be really bad for the movement. I think that, you know, sexual assaults and sexual harassment is something that is relevant to everyone. It may be more frequent for women. I think that it's inappropriate whether it's for women or for any gender. Um, but I think that it's starting to be one of these other situations where, you know, it risks uh, seeing this kind of polarization happen, where one side says, we're for, you know, believing all women in all situations, for example, and then the other side says, we're for due process, right? And that's where I can see it going off the rails in ways that would be really unfortunate to me because I think that it, actually is raising really important issues.
1: So I, I wanted—I definitely want to talk about the more kind of marginal cases, um, but I wonder if we could just, even you know, for a minute, just before that, just to acknowledge that Me Too has been you know, so powerful. Like before Me Too, I, I, I'm not sure we would have, you know, dark, the Dartmouth case would see the, the light of day, okay? So in my opinion, at least, Me Too directly resulted in um, People speaking up, people being outraged at, you know, you know this, this, this years, decades of bad behavior at Dartmouth. But it's because Me Too happened that people started speaking up before that people weren't. So I think, you know, um, uh, there still are these obvious cases. We've, we've heard about Dartmouth. I'm sure there are others that we'll hear about, you know, in the next few years. Um, so that alone, I think, has been good. Um, so let's at least say, okay, you know, that, you know, that's, that's, that's a positive. It's a net positive. Um, but I think, and then me and I can talk about maybe potential overreach and how it might, yeah, it might end up becoming something that divides people. I suppose uniting people, all of us saying, Hey, this is no good. Um, no one wants the kind of stuff that happened, this animal house atmosphere, not Dartmouth, but now the more subtle things are, are more problematic.
0: Yeah. So where do you think that this, Partisan alignment on this comes from. Is it the Kavanaugh nomination? Was it already happening before that? What do you think?
2: I think uh, the the Kavanaugh nomination certainly exacerbated it, but I think it was happening beforehand. And I want to start by saying that you know I came into this really like even emotionally, like personally, finding that it was super empowering. You know, I've been. I'm a me too, right? Like I think almost every woman can have some of those experiences if they really think back, um, I'm fine, (laughs) but you know, there, there have been cases, um, that have been like that. I mean, one of my academic cases, I actually turned down a job. I turned down a tenure track job because it was evident from the job interview that sexual harassment would be a, a regular part of my life. Right wow. At that institution. So it
0: was—it was blatant enough that during the campus visit, you're like, "This is not going to work for me." Yeah,
2: but this was 20 years ago, and I can say the way that I framed it at the time was, "Geez, he would be exhausting." Right? Can I didn't who, who say
1: name—not name names, but. Can you tell us where? I,
2: uh, no, I'm not going to, but I will say that it's been dealt with. So uh, if it was actually an ongoing thing, I think I would have been doing a lot of soul searching. It, it, it blew up about two years after um, I turned down the the job, um, but it was... I
1: mean, that's fucked up. I mean, I'm sorry. Like, that's not your refusal to name the name. It's fucked up that you have to deal with this on a yeah. job fucking interview. Like, I, I'm upset about that. Like... You know you're trying to make the best possible impression on a candidate to, you know we're doing this now we have a job search right now um and i couldn't imagine this happening uh i mean maybe i'm just a fucking idiot
0: well i mean you don't see it right like you're you're not in the room when these things happen but uh, it's just that it's hard to hold people accountable people have tenure they uh they have a lot of power um and if they want to act out Um, then they have to be, I think my impression is really extreme in their misbehavior in order for anybody to do it. you have
1: tenure doesn't mean you have to be a dick. (laughs) Words (laughs) to live by.
2: (laughs) There are so many reasons why that power differential matters though. Right? So, and I've talked to graduate students, not about cases exactly like this, but cases where you're really trying to weigh how bad will it be for you to bring this into the public to make a formal complaint um, because you're going to be losing a letter of reference. You're going to be losing opportunities, all this kind of stuff, or there are ways to cope or to circumvent or to navigate around it. And that's the kind of stuff that should just not be happening, right? And. Uh, i think that it absolutely still is happening right i think that it's happening i also want to emphasize though that you know i've been doing this for 20 years i've had a handful of situations and i've had a ton of really excellent male and female colleagues so it's not like it's everybody right and it's not like it's a daily occurrence it's just that you know the two or three or four that have happened shouldn't have happened yeah. and some of those things are enough to be big deals right you 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 don't have to turn them into Um, everything, but you also shouldn't brush them under the rug. This is not stuff that people should have to be dealing with. Um, So I think that it is really important. And so part of the reason that I'm actually a little bit critical is, again, being a little bit of a dissenter on some of the discourse on my own side, is that I want to be able to stand behind Me Too 100%. And there are a couple of things that have emerged in the discourse around it that make me feel uncomfortable about standing behind it 100%. And one of them is believe all victims. So that's a hashtag. It's a slogan. It's not what most people really think. But it is, it's pretty prevalent in social discourse, right? That, you know, that's as far as you have to go. You just believe all victims. I think that there's a real reason for that. I think the reason is that there has been too much of a balance tipped the other way, right? That there are so many ways in which it happens behind closed doors. If it's a he said, she said kind of thing that... Victims are not believed enough. They're um, challenged. What were you wearing? What were you doing? How did you invite this behavior? All of those kinds of things. So there's a really good reason why that push has happened. But from a straight up justice perspective, I can't get behind the idea that the accused doesn't have rights to. Um, And I don't think that that actually happens in most cases. But I do think it's something that, you know, feminists need to allow to be on the table and to talk about it in a relatively compassionate and nuanced way.
0: So you were talking earlier about um, the meaning of words and, and being precise. And I wonder if this is a case in which um, the people who are using this phrase are using it in a way that that is maybe... A little less precise than than we would want, right? So so you said, well, nobody actually believes that. Um and I think you could rephrase this this hashtag as um, your prior should be that the woman is telling the truth, right? But be open to disconfirmation. And I think most people would be like, Yeah, given the low base rates of false reporting, that seems reasonable. Fucking Bayesian. Fucking Bayesian.
2: <laughs> Well, one one thing that I, just to be a devil's advocate, one thing that is actually relevant is if you started with a new prior, if you start with the prior of believe all victims all the time, all accusers, that base rate might change, right? So that's, you know, it's, it's not like it would change because most women would lie, but the reasons not to do a false accusation now i mean there's absolutely no benefit to a false accusation right and if the base rate changed if it became a believe all uh, all accusers kind of situation then i think that, that that assumption would have to change as well
1: um so one other one critique i've seen uh of the me too movement and, and, and to be honest i'm not exactly sure what to, what to make of it um, this is about a couple, I think a year ago, right at the start really of the the movement, um, was by Masha Gessen, who made the point of like simply we need to differentiate. We need to have gradations of bad behavior, you know, like on a Likert scale from Aziz Ansari to Harvey Weinstein, where we acknowledge that both are bad and inappropriate behavior, but one is, um, grounds for maybe jail time. Um, and one is grounds for maybe, you know, learning a bit more about, you know, not to pressure people. Um, and, uh, so when she said it, when Masha Gessen said it, I I think, I suspect it was well-received. I, I, that, that was my thought. But then I've heard other people express that same thing and they'd received quite a bit of blowback. So Matt Damon, I think, made this uh, made this comment early in early days of Me Too. And he, I think, got so much criticism from people. Um, so what is your take on this kind of, this issue?
2: Yeah, so I mean, I, to be completely frank, I agree with Matt Damon. I agree with Masha Gessen. And I think maybe part of the difference between each of those two people pointing it out was the way that they framed it and the position they were coming from. Um, But, uh, you know, I think that is true. Um, One take on Matt Damon's statements that I've heard is that, you know, he was sort of framing it as nobody is making this nuanced distinction. And so all of you people not making this nuanced distinction, you have to start doing it. And that characterizes a group that's actually pretty heterogeneous as being much more single-minded than it really is. And uh, so I listened to Sam Harris and Rebecca Traister talking about this. And Rebecca's point to to, to Sam, who made a point, I think, about this, is that, you know, there were a lot of feminists who were talking about gradations. And it's not like people were actually saying, yes, everybody should go to jail, right? But I think that we do have a relatively low nuance social media environment and uh so people do tend to react in ways that maybe are a little the gradations are often missing in the way that people are actually talking about these things um at least in public discourse. But if you actually you know, were to put this to most people, they would say, yes, of course it's different if somebody you know, says an inappropriate comment versus somebody actually you know, uses their power to, uh, to expect some kind of a, a sexual interaction, right? So.
1: At one point that Rebecca Tracer made in that podcast, which resonated with me, and I guess I didn't appreciate it before, um, you know, she was making the point that you know, Matt Damon hasn't suffered. Um, a lot of people who have, you know, um, you know, maybe made some comments that were uh, you know, were appeared to be gauche comments. Yeah, maybe they got some some angry people on Twitter. But that's it. You know, they're still celebrities, they're still making money, their their careers aren't in jeopardy. And so what? So people are angry with you for a day or some news cycle on on Twitter. Who cares? Um, so let's not worry too much about it. Um and uh I mean, what did you make of that? I mean, I, I thought, I, I was persuaded by that. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah, people are, you know, are rational on Twitter anyway, so who cares?
2: I think that was true for Matt Damon. He's just fine. But I think that a lot of people who heard that interaction and who maybe were having the same private thoughts that Matt Damon said out loud, thought, well, if it was me, I'm not a famous celebrity. So, you know, somebody could potentially do more damage to me for saying the same sort of thing. So I think that there's, I think she has a really strong and important point to make that, you know, it's a little snowflakey to use that word to say, oh my gosh, Matt Damon was so injured by this. Uh, but I, I think that it's actually, I don't think it's something that you can just disregard that when people push back on these things, sometimes, especially for people who are somewhat less powerful, uh, it can actually have real consequences.
1: Yeah, and I guess for Sam Harris, this is a, probably a, a point that he takes personally because he's received lots of blowback um, for various opinions that he has. Um, and, I mean, he's not suffering. I mean, he's got like a million listeners on his podcast, um, nearly as many as we have. Um, yeah, he's he hot on our heels, isn't he? Yeah, that's right. Um, and, you know, he's got these, you know, speaking tours everywhere. He, he's doing well. Um, but still... I mean, I get one negative feed, you know, one negative comment on Twitter, and I'm thinking about it for for an hour. Um, it, and those are just ULs, you know. Stop tweeting me.
2: Um, one thing I've been thinking about more in the last while is, you know, the role. Rather than thinking about all of this in terms of identity politics, which is a term that gets overused. I think about a lot of this stuff in terms of class and economic inequality and, you know, discrepancies in people's opportunities to access things like, you know, education. And a lot of these ideas are things that are really coming from this intellectual class in a lot of ways. And yet, if these things are permeating culture more generally, then people are judged pretty harshly for not being up on the most recent perspectives when they might not have, I mean, they don't have the time, the energy or the opportunity to have actually read up on exactly what the right terminologies are or what the right perspectives are on these kinds of things. Yet, I think that there are cases where people are uh, really harshly criticized as though they should know all that stuff.
0: Yeah, I, I think that the class breakdown and this stuff, especially in U.S. politics, is is fascinating. Um, so... Um, I've been reading this book, which I think we're going to talk about in a future episode: uh, "Identity Crisis" by uh, Lynn Vavreck and and colleagues. You you know it. Have you read it?
2: I haven't read it, but I've, I've. Heard about
0: it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. So so what she points out is that really like the breakdown in support for Trump versus um support for other Republican candidates. So it's it's most informative to look at the primary, right? Because of the partisanship effects in the in the general election, like really break down along the lines of education. So Trump drew particularly less educated whites, right? That was his really like core demographic and i do feel like there's a bit of these overtones of of classism to be honest of well educated affluent liberal whites now get kind of the moral comfort of looking down on the people that they're doing much better than, right? And it's, it, I think it's very appealing to be like, oh, yeah, you know, those folks who are working, you know, for $12 an hour or, or whatever, um, I'm better than them morally because they're racists, you know? And I, I really do resist that because it feels so morally easy to be like, oh, those people suck. Um, and, you know, classism has been with us. Uh, well, I mean, forever. Americans like to pretend we have a classless society, and we obviously don't. And I feel like this is kind of the the latest incarnation of that. Like, if you look at the midterm elections that just happened, like, where was the big swing to the Democrats? It was in affluent whites who had been traditionally a core Republican demographic. These like affluent suburbs swung left, right. So, like, let's say that's the new realignment are we really going to be comfortable with saying like, we're morally superior to the poor people? Like that, that makes me profoundly uncomfortable.
2: Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that, so I just as a biographical note, autobiographical note, I am a first-generation university student. I come from the East Coast. Uh, Nobody from my family had gone to university before. And I have a lot of, well, both conservatives in my family as well as people who really just don't get what in the world I'm doing. And anytime I wanna get a check on, you know, the humility piece uh, that what I, you know, I'm really not very important (laughs) to most people in the world, Um, I just go back to the East Coast and I, I get reminded of that. So and
1: you and I share where I'm also a first generation. So really the elitist here is you well.
0: Yeah, both my parents have PhDs.
2: Right.
1: So uh so your your, your moral outrage is is some sort of compensation or? It's,
0: it's directed at myself. It's self-loving. Yeah.
2: But I really do think that a lot of the the specific issues that need an education to really completely understand, right? And I don't want to say this in a way that actually looks down on people as uneducated either, but I think that, you know, there's a lot of issues that are important in some circles um, for some kind of intellectual reasons that really, you know, most people who are in the working class, most people who are struggling to make ends meet, who have like real serious, genuine concerns of their own, they really don't give a shit about this stuff right? And I think it's pretty insulting for them to feel like they're being looked down upon and uh, treated as deplorables when, um, you know, this is this is not a top priority for them. It's not even something that they're necessarily actively against until you treat it as a reason for why they actually no longer matter, right?
1: Yeah. Um, so I see we're running out of time, um, but I want to, uh, before we we finish, as I was kind of researching you and, um, your, your topics of interest, I was piqued, uh, by your, a very recent study on tattoos. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of people, I guess you, you had done research on, uh, the opinions people have about people who have tattoos. And, uh, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about it, but maybe before, can you tell us if you have a tattoo?
2: That is so funny. Everybody who asks about that research asks if I have a tattoo. I don't have any tattoos. I'm married to somebody who has a full arm and a number of other tattoos, uh, but I don't have any. Um, And the only reason I don't is because I am uh, not committed enough to something that I know I would want to have forever, right? So otherwise, I would totally...
1: You know, in the you know, when I was uh, an undergrad at McGill, I was dying to get a tattoo, which would have been a Kurt Cobain tattoo, and I still kind of like Kurt Cobain, but I'm not sure I want a picture of him on my <laughs> arm or back or wherever. Um, so me too. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so so no tattoos for you, Mickey?
1: No, although I I must admit, so I'm an atheist, but. Um, you know, in Judaism, tattoos are forbidden. Um, you're supposed to leave the earth as you came, came to it. Um, so typically among Jewish people, it's not as common, although I think that's changed in the past, you know, few generations. Uh, but no, I don't, and I have no desire to get one either.
2: Yeah. So that research actually was done with an economist who spent about 20 years in Israel, I think, um, and is Jewish and came back to Canada. And part of the reason he was interested in this topic was because he saw tattoos everywhere and he hadn't seen them previously. Um, And he was interested in them kind of from this at least mildly disapproving perspective. And I was the tattoo apologist. So we had this kind of, you know, adversarial perspective on uh, what we would end up finding.
1: So what did you find?
2: Well, the the main finding, actually, there's two papers coming out of this. I think one of them is out now. Um, the, the finding that's out now is really just that a lot of the stereotypes about people who have tattoos are incorrect. So one of the stereotypes is that people are less honest and kind of less morally okay. But we did, you know, sort of proper economist types of measures where uh, people had a chance to cheat for actual money and people who have tattoos don't cheat any more than people who don't have tattoos. The other paper that's coming out is looking at something else that I'm interested in which is temporal perspective and uh, one of the things that we do find is that people who have tattoos tend to be somewhat more impulsive than people who don't have tattoos and have a shorter temporal perspective.
1: Oh, that's really interesting. Um, So we've gone from polarization to tattoos, me to Jordan Peterson. Um, I feel we've covered like a lot of ground here.
0: Yeah, more than usual. So thanks, Anne, so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure having you.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot. And thanks for bringing the beer.